You're listening to the Journey to Impact Fireside Chat Series with Gino Borges, curator of the Poetry of Impact, a platform for supporting the collective inquiry into deep impact. As a part of the Poetry of Impact, the Journey to Impact podcast brings to life the ebb and flow inherent on the path of impact, illuminating the interior journey of the hearts and minds of today's top leaders in impact. Here, you'll hear the intimate stories of those who push forward to overcome self-limitations and societal barriers, to co-create a world where one day all people and planet can thrive together. Hi, I'm Gino Borges, curator of the Journey to Impact podcast series. Joining us today is Paulo Frezia. Paulo is an impact investor with a focus on mitigating climate change, promoting sustainable production and consumption, reducing gender and LGBT inequalities, Paulo uh, is also involved in systems change philanthropy. Definitely want to get into that a little bit, um, Paulo, as well. And activism through Give Out and the Gorilla Foundation. Paulo lives in London with his husband, daughter, and dog. Passionate about adventure travel, classic boat sailing, swimming, scuba diving, Ayurveda medicine, and cooking. Also as a member and board member of Tonic which is a global action community for impact investors. And I'm proud to announce that this conversation with Paulo is brought to you as a part of the partnership between Poetry of Impact and Tonic. Welcome, Paulo. Thank you, Gina. I'm so glad to be here. Well, uh, Paulo, I met you a few years ago, and I believe it was actually more than a few years ago. It was at Big Sur, and uh, we really touched it off in terms of the 100% gathering. And it's a special, it's a special group. Uh, you know, it's a small, it's a subgroup within Tonic. But in particular, for those listeners that aren't familiar with it, um, you know, it really sort of fosters a community of people that are all in and all in on the difficulties of what it means to be 100% impact. And I want us to sort of go back in your life a little bit here and talk about first the enabling event for you to even be resourceful, what, like, what occurred in, in your life that enabled the resources, and then what, what also led you to saying, wow, okay, now I'm seemingly resourceful in the material world, now I want to be intentional about it. So, so I mean, can you sort of walk us through that path a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's a great question and something that I ask myself all the time right now. I'm like, well, how did I come to be here? And what would I do if I didn't have the money, to be frank? It's always at the back of my mind. Um, and it all started with the fact that my mom got really sick when I was an adolescent and she had cancer and she started making plans. Um, for us because she knew that at some point she was not going to be there anymore and in a beautiful way she brought me uh, into her journey into her relationship with wealth which was a very complex one that had a lot to do with her dysfunctional relationship with her mother and how a lot of this wealth was amassed in ways that she didn't approve of you know we had a, a liquor company uh, alcohol producing company which is great but it also had a lot of negative what we call now externalities so my mom, what she remembers was not, you know, the, the fancy board meetings or the nice aperitifs. She remembers speaking to employees that maybe were drunk on their job. Uh, and so she, she wasn't, you know, so happy about that. And then she also remembers meetings with trustees and all these like fancy tax structures to try and hide all these 
money away from tax authorities, which she also didn't approve of. So she was very clear that, you know, if it was up to her, she wouldn't do it that way. But this was 2005, 2006. I think the term impact investing still wasn't even in, invented. So by the time she passed, she had just intuitively passed along this, this intuition and knowledge to me. And all she did was like, well, Paolo, I hope you do it differently. And I strongly suggest that you go and study uh, economics. And what I did is study both philosophy and economics. So that, that was an interesting combination. Um, so that, you know, if you ever have to be in front of a trustee or a CEO of a company that we control, you can read a balance sheet and be able to speak up to them. Because you know, I feel like a failure, but I wasn't able to do that because she was an artist. And, and, and that's sad because you know, she, she really shouldn't have been feeling sad about it. Uh, because she had the right intuitions and, and it's the world around there that didn't allow her to do it. So fast forward to that. I mean, I was in 21 when my mom passed away. So I was fully focused on building my life, my identity, my career, traveling, of course. And my first reaction to wealth was to push it completely away. I was like, well, my mom told me it's a horrible world. I just don't even want to see it. I'm just going to pretend that it doesn't exist. And I did that pretty successfully uh, for a number of years, getting job after job, meeting my now husband, traveling around the world, um, you know, leading a very privileged life. But to be honest, I was just you know, earning my own money um, uh, thanks to the wonderful education that I got. I got certain jobs that enabled me to earn money. Um, and I first worked at Goldman Sachs, which was a, a baptism of fire into the finance world. Soon discovered that um, it was not motivating me to just earn money for the sake of earning money. And it wasn't me rationally telling myself that. It was actually my body telling mm. me that that was not going to work because I experienced after a year and a half in front of six screens on a trading floor, uh, my, what I now know to be a panic attack and that I haven't had many of uh, since then. <laughs> so my body clearly was not suited to that type of environment during the financial crisis. After that, I, I went completely different route. I worked for Doctors Without Borders, very well-known NGO. I uh, was their uh, chief financial officer in Haiti uh, for the years after the big earthquake during the cholera epidemic. And at that time, uh, you know, it was a complete U-turn. And I think what was amazing about that experience is that every day I woke up feeling I couldn't care less about my wealth. I couldn't care less about my privilege. All I know is that I'm here every day helping people save their life essentially and that was so motivating so wonderful really expanded my empathy levels uh it you know was a bit voyeuristic and colonialistic i'm there as the <laughs> white guy managing the money yeah. and physically going to the bank with like a backpack to make sure that people were hired you know doctors and nurses to be able to save their own people uh, having said that it was a really wonderful experience it really enabled to see you know what reality is on the ground in a way that regular travel really doesn't do um, and after that, I think that the last big experience that I had professionally before becoming an impact investor full time was to be a corporate sustainability consultant when I lived in China and Hong Kong with my husband because he speaks fluent Chinese. And, and this sounds like a big word, corporate sustainability consultant, but what was it essentially? It was going into big Fortune 500 companies supply chains and looking at how they can make them more sustainable. And that was really a crucial moment for me because I realized that I did not really know how things got made. And for the first time, I walked into a poultry processing factory in China, which, of course, shocked me. And then I walked into a garment factory in Myanmar. 
And then I went into a paper and pulp plant in Laos. And, and I just, you know, the world kind of turned upside down for me. I was like, I can't believe it. I didn't realize that the way money is made and the way things are made has a massive negative impact on the planet and on the people who do this. And I just felt so ignorant and so humbled by all of that. And I just couldn't believe it. I hadn't figured it out. So I think that was the point where I started thinking, okay, well, I have some resources. They're there, mismanaged, hidden away, not managed well. Like, let me maybe try and regain control and see if I can use some of those resources to try and, and fix some of these negative impacts. And, and here I am now, three years into uh, being a full time impact investor. Now, <clears throat> were you your mom's only uh, child or do you have siblings as well? I have a sister. Um, I have a sister um, with whom I have a very difficult relationship because I think um, she was probably even more scared about the wealth than I was. And because of her desire to have a family, I think her instinctive reaction is just to hold on to hold on to it and not to really analyze it. She does, she's an anthropologist. Uh, and, and so she both at the same time pushes it away, but wants to have the comfort to know that it's there. And so I think the first few years I tried to be in charge while trying to be fully transparent with her about what I was doing and explain that I had a vision. So one of the things that we did together and that I'm still very proud of, the fact that she was on board, we took advantage of uh, an amnesty law in Italy and went, you know, hired someone to go through all this money, 60, 70 years past, and pay back all the taxes at, at a reduced rate because there was an amnesty law, but pay back all the taxes that would have been on that money that was taxed away. Um, I wouldn't say illegally because probably it was not illegal. It was just in a tax opti optimized way. And that, that you know, fills me with pride because I, at least I feel that my sister and I are kind of clean with that. And we follow through with what my mom wanted to do. And we kind of know that, yes, it's unfair in, in any way that we inherited all this money that wasn't the fruits of, of our labor. But at least we've, we've come clear of that from a tax perspective. But then after that, she didn't feel like she wanted to make the, the further step into becoming an active impact investor. You know, the focus is on, on family. And I think that's fine. And I think the more I work on my portfolio, maybe in a, in a few years, she I'll be able to tell some, some beautiful stories and, and bring it along the journey. And part of something that I want to achieve with my broader family as well. Yeah, and so were those travels a part of shaping um, your, your three distinct areas of uh, climate change, uh, sustainable production and consumption, and reducing gender um, inequalities? Can you sort of talk about the work that you went through? In fact, I think when I met you, you were wrangling with like, how do I sort of set all this up? Like, how do I put it in a coherent, um you know way of talking about it understanding it um, and i know you've done a lot of work after that to actually set like new standards even for how you evaluate deals and so forth and i mean we'll get into that in a second but how do you take all that you've been exposed to and you found sort of your three buckets or maybe that's even the wrong metaphor but sort of talk us through or take us through and talk us through how how are potentially also how they may be connected. Absolutely, absolutely. So let's go right back to that moment when I first met you, because I remember I just joined Tonic. I felt kind of crazy to jump on a plane, go across <laughs> the ocean to California. I felt like, well, is this going to be worth it? It's you know tiring, carbon emissions, expensive. 
And then I show up thinking, wow, I'm just going to meet all these people. I got my business cards ready. See, you know, too many years working in Asia. Business cards ready. And I'm going to like try as many deals done as possible and try to invest this money as quickly as possible so that I can then go back to my career and not have to worry about investing the money responsibly. So my initial idea was like, you know, I'm going to be doing this for like one or two years max. I'm not going to be telling anyone about it because it's you know, kind of shameful to have money. Uh, but at least here, some people have told me that there's this community called Tonic where there's some like-minded people. I'm going to try and get as much of, of it uh, out of it as possible and, and, and leave. And then I get there and I uh, open the door and Lisa and Charlie Kleisner open the door and I offer my hand. And in return, Lisa Kleisner opens her arms and she hugs me. And then everyone else I meet there, including you, hugs me. And I'm like, well, I love this. This is great. And then we do a yoga class. I'm like, well, I love that too. And then we go into sharing circles where we don't think about how to find the best green bonds or private equity funds. We talk about our relationship with money, uh, our values. I'm like, oh, this is fantastic. And I think the biggest takeaway was beep, like wrong direction. I was already heading in the wrong direction. So I was, I felt kind of saved by that first Big Sur meeting where it kind of felt like the first couple of months I had been working on this, I was really just too focused on the how and deploying capital rather than looking inward and thinking about, well, why am I doing this? Uh, what is impact and how do I create an impact strategy, which is your question. Mm -hmm. So to get to that, um, the way I did it is that, you know, my intuition has always been that whatever I am passionate about, frankly, has zero impact on the external world. So I always want to ground whatever I, the, the prioritization of whatever I invest in into what is the most needed in the world? What's the most urgent? What's the most neglected? But of course, I know myself that being a human, I wouldn't be able to deploy capital effectively if I also didn't feel passionate about those same areas that are neglected and, and urgent. Um, and so I tried to kind of do an intersection of, of, of the two. And that's why I landed on, on climate, just because, you know, thinking about the next generation, I really feel that that is the most pressing issue uh, in the world right now. And it's global. And given that I don't have any particular ties to a specific place, yes, now I live and feel very settled here in London. I come from Italy, but my investment is very much global. I felt that the global nature of climate change really lends itself to, to my uh, portfolio. Then I landed on gender because by that time we already knew that we were expecting a girl as a daughter. And uh, when, when that happened, I, all the images of, of the women working in the factories that I had seen in Asia while working there really flashed uh, before my eyes. And I thought, wow, like if we really don't empower uh, women and girls and we don't achieve absolute equality, at the gender level, not to mention your know, broader equality of income of people of different sexual orientations like myself, et cetera, et cetera. But just starting from gender equality, I think we are really not going to get anywhere. Uh, and there's a lot of evidence that links that to climate. And we know a lot about it with Project Drawdown. So that the more you empower girls, the more you enable them to access family planning, uh, prob most probably the, the, the fewer children are going to be born uh, that are children who are not wanted and, and the the, the less pressure on global resources. So that made sense, and it kind of linked with climate. And then, of course, as I talked about it before, sustainable supply chains was, was the natural career training that I had. That's what I did, right? I just tried to uh, look at companies and how do they either turn a, a bad supply chain into a good one, or how do you 
uh, invest in, in companies that are trying to do things completely different. And one thing that, for example, I've been looking at a lot recently in, in this bucket of sustainable supply chains has been regenerative agriculture, um, which you know links it directly to the food system. And I'm passionate about food. So there you go. It's something that it's needed. There's still clearly not transition finance to make sure that we have enough uh, acres converted to organic and regenerative. Um, so bingo, you know, the evidence tells me that it's needed and I'm passionate about it. Let's try and invest in that. So that, that's how I got to these three buckets. Am I really strict about them? Do I interpret them holistically? Uh, yes, you know, all, all, all of the above. Like I'm not strict about it. I try to follow them, but then investments very rarely fall into need categories, right? Sure. So I think there's a, there's a broad range of investments in my portfolio. Sure. And take us through that. Um, I was looking at your portfolio and you t and you have a really interesting way of not just interesting, but very thorough way of explaining why, why you did the deal. Um, and I, and I love your diligence. Uh, your, your did your, you know, your diligence goes after types of questions that most people don't ask. Um, and you also want a reciprocal opportunity. Like you also look and, and ask yourself, can I help this portfolio company out in any way as well? So can you take us into sort of that who, what, when, where, and why model that uh, grew out of this discovery for you? Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I'll be, I'll be very honest, uh, which is the, what you've seen probably on, on my website, 100percentsustainability.com, uh, is uh, the IMP framework, the Impact Management Project framework, who is this wonderful organization uh, who a couple of years ago decided there's too much jargon in this industry. Uh, let's define what is impact uh, and what are the five key areas that we need to analyze what an investment, uh, an investment's impact is. And they just said, like, let's, let's let go of the jargon. Uh, we just need to look at what is it, who is impacted, how much impact, uh, what's your contribution as an investor, and what's the risk of not achieving that impact? And so I, I love that framework. I love it it's too. It's so easily understandable by, by anyone. And so now I look at every single investment um, with that lens. And I um, don't do as much direct investing myself because uh, I don't have enough time or resources or honestly expertise in a specific sector to be doing direct investing. So what I do usually is that I invest through fund managers uh, because I really have come to appreciate uh, specialists who really know a particular geography, a particular topic, a particular field. Um, and then when I do assess them, I, of course, assess an alignment uh, of values that I have with them. But then I really want to get a sense that they are not doing this just because impact investing is trendy or fancy. I want to have some form of evidence, however, you know, non-numeric evidence, however narrative, mm -hmm. but some evidence that they are having an impact. So I'm not saying that I just need to see numbers, but I want to see a coherent theory of why are they doing this? Why do they think it's important? Why do they believe that their investments are gonna change something in the world? Vis-a-vis, -vis, for example, me just doing philanthropy and donating that money to the same cause. Because in the end, that's the choice that I always face, right? Which is like, well, um, do I give uh, the many resources that I have and don't need as a family away right now? Or do I invest them in a way that is not just aligned with my values, but hopefully changing something uh, for the better in the world so that I can get a return on that impact investment and recycle the capital for future impact investments or future philanthropy? Um, 
And, and how do you navigate that? Because one of the things that I mentioned to uh, listeners is that you are very actively involved in systems change philanthropy. So maybe touch mm-hmm. on how you navigate that dialectical dance between philanthropy and investing and in particular systems change philanthropy. Yeah, that, that's a very, very good question. So the, the trade-off between, uh, there's two things, right? The first question is how do you navigate the whether to invest or whether to give uh, your money philanthropically? And I think the, the first way in which I do it is to really ask myself how much is enough, right? Because if you have your financial plan and you know that you don't need all these resources, and ideally, I hope, you know, when my children grow up, I'll be able to have this conversation with them. You establish with your children that they don't need as many resources. Then you sort of know that by the time you're 70 or 80, you can just have a minimum nugget, which is your enough. And I think that uh, brings out a lot of good conversations in a family, which I've really enjoyed having with my husband, with my in-laws, and really trying to figure out, okay, how much of this wealth are we spending down over uh, across the years? Um, with that in mind, then I know that I have a budget for philanthropy. And the way I decide on my philanthropy is what is it that is not investable right now that the world needs? And usually those tend to be two things. Uh, there's about half of my philanthropy, which is uh, looking at what is the most effective way philanthropically to change something in the world. And it, it sounds very much like effective altruism school, but I'm not married to effective altruism as a school of thought. But, but, but essentially, it's about saying, okay, what are the most neglected issues, like global health problems? What are the most urgent ones? And what are the ones that we can realistically solve? What, where can I get the most bang for my buck? So I do a lot of philanthropy on, on that. Well, a lot. Half of my philanthropy, which is monetarily still not a lot, unfortunately. <laughs> and then the, the rest of the philanthropy is what you asked about, which is the systems change philanthropy which I think is something that uh, by the latest statistics is about 2% of global giving. So I do half, but globally it's about 2% of global giving. And that's really providing resources to activists and grassroots groups who are very brave in looking not just at the symptoms of um, our broken socioeconomic system, but to actually say, what are the root causes of all the problems that we have today, like climate change, uh, like social inequality? And they go about fighting them, not through uh, interventions that are classic of an NGO like Doctor of the Borders, but they really try and organize at the local community level, yet to have an impact at the system. And I've been to partner with another Tonic member in this, Tony Schwartz, who started a foundation called the Guerrilla Foundation, uh, doing um, activism and systems change philanthropy here in Europe. And I think it's been fascinating because we've been looking at grant applications and sometimes you get uh, the craziest ideas out in front of you. One of them a couple of years ago was uh, here in the UK. This guy told us, well, the best way to convince the UK government that there is a climate crisis is to organize in small groups and protest in a way that is not violent, but really disruptive to the order of London as a city and get arrested by the government. And the more of us go to jail in the name of climate, the more we will be able to raise awareness. That movement grew into what we know now, what we know now as Extinction Rebellion. And Extinction Rebellion now 
succeeded in having the UK government declare a climate emergency. It's organizing citizens' assemblies across the world. And so this is just a, one success story. Of course, we have many other failures among these success stories. But it's incredible how with very few resources, I think the first grant we gave them was like 15,000 pounds, we then could see this movement become a massive transnational movement. But it's not, you know, it's very hard for me to tell you how many CO2 emissions were avoided by them. I probably don't know. But do I feel and can I see that it's changed the narrative around climate? Hell yes. So to people that tell us like, no, activism, no, it's so hard to measure. It's better not to focus on it. I say, BS. Yeah. It's not true. Look at it. it, it it's really having an impact. So I, I really want to focus a lot of my philanthropic resources on, mm. on activism. Mm. So, I mean, a couple of things come up for me there is, is that you mentioned your mom's an artist and your sister's an anthropologist. And you did mention that you have this background in uh, traditional finance um, as well in terms of doing economics, a background in philosophy as well. Um, Mm -hmm. would sort of like to understand uh, like what is the role it's very similar like what you just got to talking about but um, it may not be as visceral but what is the role of creativity and art as a form of protest and not just funding white papers and going through the typical sort of legislative channels but actually revamping consciousness through um, form changing like changing the forms, which like artists are really beautiful at really disrupting. Yeah, I mean, that's such a great question. And it's something that I've really had to um, live through before I truly got it. So the, the first you know, anecdote that comes to mind is that um, through the Guerrilla Foundation, we also gave a grant to a group also here in the UK uh, called Art the Arms uh, Fair. Uh, I didn't know this, but in London every year, uh, there is the biggest fair of people who come here uh, to uh, trade in weapons of mass destruction. Um, how lovely to, to attend uh, <laughs> that conference. And so these activists decided, hey, we're artists. Why don't we uh, listen to what other people in the community think about war and create art out of it and set up a pavilion right in front of the main conference with art oh, that cute. displays uh, what people think about not just war itself, because otherwise that is resembles the usual protest, you know, with people that go outside yeah. a fair and say like, yeah, war is bad, and no one cares about that, right? And if anything, they just call security and, and, and boot you out. Whereas this was like a properly done fair, you know, it looked fully legit, and it showed how also evil is the perspective of people who trade into Weapons. So it really gets at the root of like, why do we have a productive system? Why do we have a government system in which we have such high budgets allocated to defense and these types of nuclear weapons that could exterminate us? And I think that was brilliant because I think after a couple of years, the venue that was hosting this conference realized that they didn't want to host them anymore. And I don't know what other tangible impacts happened because I'm not fully up to speed, but I'm sure there were some. And, and it, it's probably also changed the mind of those attendees that were going to that conference, because probably, you know, unbeknownst to their employer, they might have just dropped in and seen some of that and talked to some of the artists. And who knows what type of effect that has had on the employee of Rivian or another, uh, you know, defense company. So it's really, really powerful. And the other thing I would say that I hinted at, but I want to expand on in terms of the effect of creativity is, is participatory element. Because if you're in a grassroots, community, if you're an artist, 
just because you have that creativity, I think you're 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 just bound more likely to be more connected. I mean, there are exceptions, of course, more connected, at least to yourself and to your feelings, but hopefully also to the community or nature around you. And that means that you're less likely to, when you move to to becoming an activist, go out and uh, propose what is just your own idea. You're more likely to then source your ideas of what is the problem and how to fix it from your environment and your community. And I think this is really what philanthropy and impact investing need more of. We need fewer, I think, uh, uh, ex-Goldman uh, Sachs uh, converts like myself, uh, white and privileged, going out to say like, well, this is the problem, these are the SDGs, and this is how we fix them. We need more and more community-based listening. I mean, and that's why it's so beautiful to listen to you, Gino, when you talk about your real estate investments, because you can really see how by talking to the people and listening what they need, to what they, they want, not what they need. Uh, see, I'm brainwashed already <laughs> by, by the NGO community. Uh, and, and, and then you can come up with, with what the world needs. And yes, maybe you can scale it, or maybe you can not just necessarily scale it at all costs with the same solution, but try and build some sort of communication and interdependence between one community and the other and see what fits in the other community. Yeah. Uh, and creativity, I think, plays a huge part in that. So you mentioned in your previous response that um, you're really moved by the small grant, how it catalyzed uh, England to, you know, announce climate change as and put it on the forefront in ways that it hadn't beforehand because it was sort of this alternative tactic and strategy. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think what I really, um, what really stuck out to me in terms of your response was how you're really enamored with this idea that like, hey, it shit's starting to change. Like the shit that I've been working on, climate, and even as much as I feel despaired and grieve like hell over the loss of this and that, it's I can feel something moving. And I'm having conversations with people as well in the States even though in a mediated way you see, you know, the United States not participating in like these large policy conversations, whether it's the Paris Agreement and so forth, and 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 we're having, you know, the absence of leadership um, over the past four years here uh, for sure. But what's happening is, is that people are just saying like, hey, if you're not going to respond, doesn't mean that we aren't going to respond. Have you noticed that in Europe and how are you feeling now about, I mean, I know you put an enormous amount of investment, resources, time and money into this climate conversation, climate res responses and climate technologies. Where are you feeling it right now? I mean, what's most alive for you right now was the, I mean, when it comes to climate. Yeah, I mean, what's most alive for me is usually sadness and despair because every time I see statistics uh, or I just, uh, I'm a sailor, so I constantly look at weather forecasts and I see that in any place where I go sailing, what is expected in that season is never the weather that I actually see when I go there. So I, I just, what's mo most alive is, is truly to seeing the negative effects yeah. uh, from my very privileged standpoint of, of sailing, but also when I you know go and visit uh, other places that changes really the life of people or in, or in agriculture, as we were talking about, the, the change in, in weather patterns. Um, what energizes me, on the other hand, is uh, really to see how, um, despite you know, my capital being limited compared to the full financial system, just by being active in the space, you really have an opportunity to influence 
others. And so there are certain um, types of investments like public stocks that a lot of people say like, well, but that's never going to be really impact investing because whether I buy a stock or you buy a stock doesn't really change anything. And my answer has always been, well, yes, I mean, of course, uh, that is true. However, the fact that I as an investor am out there and I'm constantly questioning really lots of money, fund managers and their clients when I do reference calls uh, and big charities and pension funds who hire these fund managers. And I'm constantly questioning them and, and try to have them to push the corporations that they invest in at the edge of their practice with something like climate. I think that is really having an effect because then the statistics on that front, whenever I read the Financial Times here in London, since you asked me about Europe, um, they're, they're always positive. There's more and more money, institutional, big, you know, billions of money going into uh, decarbonized assets, uh, you know, fossil-free index funds, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I mean, is that going to save the world? No, but I do feel that it's moving in the right direction. Uh, and that the pressure really starts from hanging out with Greta in the grassroots, uh, but as well, uh, you know, in, in my own family office practice, or when I go and advise other institutions on, on their board on where to place their money and then being vocal about it. And there's many academic studies that will tell you there's no empirical evidence that that has, is having an effect, yet I feel it <laughs> and that energizes me. Yeah. Uh, and so I wish I could hire an academic that can prove me you know, can prove the other academics wrong. Uh, but at some point, I think I, I think we'll be proven right as, a, as an impact investing community. Mm. Now, who do you team up? In? Now, do you have a, a group of families that um, have similar intentions? Um, are you running solo? Um, just sort of take us through your day-to-day -day and your uh, connections there in terms of how you try to leverage your your own work, your own time, and so forth. Yeah, I think that that's a really good question. It's something that I also ask myself every single day. So what I've decided from the beginning was that um, this journey into impact investing uh, was carrying me because it was going to be quite solitary, you know, just me with my own money. I don't have an employer anymore. So what I decided from the beginning was that I had to do it with other people. And that's why I landed with communities like Tonic, the global level, with the conduit here in London. And through that, I've made many friends with whom I've also partnered with in making certain investments. I mean, I've talked about Guerrilla Foundation on the philanthropic side. Uh, there's many other people with whom I've looked at investments and diligence them together uh, on the impact investing side. Um, however, I didn't feel like I wanted to build my own team because I'm still not yet at a point where I feel I have enough expertise uh, uh, to be able to, to do that. And so I hire advisors and I'm a big proponent of hiring really good independent values aligned advisors. And many people call advisors certain types of firms or people who I don't even consider to be advisors. If you're telling me that your bank is your advisor, I would say like, well, that's, yes, you can call it an advisor, but is it your independent advisor? No, it isn't. And so I've, I think I've found a lot of community in, in those types of advisors because I felt not just the values alignment, but the alignment of interest, not just in giving me the best performing and most sustainable investments, but in moving the industry along. And that really energizes me. Uh, and that means also that I've switched advisors probably too often, mm. <laughs> uh, that I've wanted to really very publicly reward those advisors who are pushing the field more and more. 
And I, I do that not just for myself and with my own portfolio, but by sitting on boards of endowed charities and hopefully in the future, even bigger pots of money like pension funds to try and, and shift uh, their assets, not just to impact investment, but to with advisors who get the community around this and understand um, the need of transitioning the whole world of finance. Yeah. Thank you so much, Paulo. Um, you, I love your story and I love the way that you opened it up in terms of the way you shared your uh, story about being enabled with resources. Obviously, it came with an uh, enormous amount of loss uh, with, I mean, your mom uh, passing. Uh, but then also, you really sort of took us through a path that a lot of people, frankly, aren't willing to, first of all, privately engage, two, publicly acknowledge you know often there's a lot of um, shame associated with wealth and then shame with the inevitable mistakes that we make right i mean you mm -hmm. can probably list the gazillion mistakes that you've made between when you're 21 oh, yes. and now um <laughs> oh yeah and 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 yet you're out here doing it and and i know you're having a big influence on people because every time i talk to you i'm not only do i learn something but i'm just energized by the fact that you uh, see this experience as like, hey, look, I'm a human. I'm a human on earth. I enjoy learning. But more than anything, it's like I'm really leading with my heart, even though I got my little toolkit back here and I know finance like just as good as anybody else. You're finding a way to sort of massage that space between your heart and the financial tools and all the emotions that come with it, whether it's the guilt, the shame, the privilege. Um, and so forth. So I really want to thank you uh, for sharing that really coherent, holistic story. And it's muddy, right? I mean, it's just like, it's inherently muddy. It is. It is. And I think you're giving way too much credit by, by putting it together so coherently. It's even muddier than, than, than the muddy that you <laughs> talked about. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Um, I mean, glad to really um, have you join this conversation. Thank you, Gina. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to The Journey to Impact. If you enjoyed this episode, help us spread the word by subscribing to this series on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends on your favorite social media platform. For a preview of our previous or upcoming episodes, visit www.poetryofimpact.com. <laughs>